This is not the reality show that President Trump wanted. The lead starts right now. Just hours away from a critical moment for the nation and for the future of a presidency, Republicans are revealing their playbook on how they want to try to defend the president as two key witnesses prepare to publicly detail efforts to get Ukraine to do Trump's political dirty work. The heads up, a Trump campaign official under oath totally contradicting President Trump's written answer to Robert Mueller about what he knew about stolen Russian dirt. And is it all just a joke to Russia? Today, Moscow saying, don't worry, we got this, when asked about Russia's plans for the U.S. election. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with the politics lead. 18 hours from now, the first public televised hearings in the impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump and the Ukraine scandal. Tomorrow, we will hear from two Trump administration officials, Bill Taylor, currently the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, who repeatedly described in detail what he clearly saw as a quid pro quo, saying he was told, quote, President Trump wants Ukraine President Zelensky to state publicly that Ukraine will investigate Burisma, that's the company that Hunter Biden once worked for, and alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 U.S. election. Plus, State Department official George Kent, who testified, quote, Trump wanted nothing less than President Zelensky to go to a microphone and say, investigations, Biden and Clinton. Democrats today laying out the process for the hearings that they hope will convince even more of the American people of the need to impeach President Trump. And as CNN's Alex Marquardt reports for us now, Republicans are preparing their defense strategy, which relies in part on you believing a whole bunch of assertions that are contradicted by witnesses and evidence. With historic impeachment hearings just hours away, Republicans are now outlining four broad arguments to defend the president. They first argue that the transcript of the July 25th call between Presidents Trump and Zelensky show no conditionality or pressure to announce investigations into the Bidens before getting anything in return. We know there was nothing wrong on the call transcript. We got the two guys on the call who said there was no pressure, no pushing, no quid pro quo. But on the call, when the Ukrainian president asks for military aid, Trump says, I would like you to do us a favor, though. Thank you very much. Trump makes it clear he wants Zelensky to investigate the Bidens and a conspiracy theory about Democrats and the 2016 election. Zelensky responds, I guarantee, as the president of Ukraine, that all the investigations will be done openly and candidly. Second, the GOP argues both presidents have said there was no pressure. Nobody pushed it. Pushed me. Before Zelensky took office, a source told CNN that he and his aides had a meeting in which they discussed the pressure they were already feeling to open investigations that the Trump administration wanted. And there was $400 million in aid on the line. Third, when the president spoke on July 25th, Republicans say the Ukrainian government was not aware the aid was being held up. But it wasn't just about aid. The Ukrainians wanted a White House meeting as well, and it was made clear to them in multiple conversations with the president's team before that call they would not get it unless they launched investigations. Finally, they argue the aid was released, and the Ukrainians got the meeting without Ukraine launching investigations. When the aid was released, was there anything that was ever given to this president or the American people on behalf of any connection to releasing that aid, aid? And the answer is no. The aid was released on September 11th, only after the hold had been reported and there was pressure on the White House, including from Republican senators. And it was just two days before President Zelensky had planned to announce the investigations that Trump wanted. 
All of those arguments will be on full display tomorrow when the first open hearing is gaveled into session with Ambassador Bill Taylor and George Kent. They are going together because Democrats say the two men were witnesses to what they call the full scope of the president's misconduct. Then, on Friday, there will be the next open hearing with Marie Yovanovitch, the former ambassador to Ukraine who was recalled by Trump in May. Democrats are calling her the first victim of the president's scheme. Jake. Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Let's uh, chew over all this uh, with our panel. Congressman Dent, let me start with you. You're a former Republican House member. Uh, I had heard that at one point Republicans were going towards the, look, the president shouldn't have done this, but it's not impeachable defense. But that's not what Republican House members are offering here. They're basically saying this was all perfect. Well, yeah, it was perfectly awful, uh, the, whole, the whole call. I mean, it was a, a, it's a fiasco. I think Republicans are going to be making a, a huge mistake if they do not acknowledge that the president's conduct was terrible. And then if they want to make the argument that, well, maybe this doesn't rise to the, rise to the level of impeachment, well, that's another debate to have. But I don't think there's any, anything to be gained by trying to pretend that everything is okay, uh, abusing your power, using your office, uh, you know, y- using your office to uh, investigate your opponent, uh, and not, not even to mention a quid pro quo. I mean, it's bad. There's no, no defense here. So, Karen, I want you to take a listen. Uh, Bill Taylor, who is mm-hmm. the current top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, he's uh, one of the star witnesses tomorrow. Here's Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin, a Republican of New York, one of the president's strongest defenders, talking to CNN's Manu Raju about Bill Taylor. Take a listen. Is he a credible witness? No, he's not second, third, fourth hand, no hand information in some cases. You can't actually know what was really said when you're relying on third, fourth hand information. Now, Bill Taylor Hmm. does rely on information that he was told by Gordon Sondland, who says he was told it by either President Trump or Rudy Giuliani. So it's second hand, not third, fourth, fifth hand. Uh, But he does have a point that Bill Taylor doesn't have firsthand information here because he never spoke with President Trump. That's not unfair. However, Bill Taylor is the person that our current secretary of state actually recruited to come and take the job and who has himself a very distinguished career as a foreign service officer. If I'm not mistaken, he served in Vietnam. He did. So I think he's going to present as a very credible person. And as we also know, he takes very good notes, right? That's one of the things that was pointed out when he testified. So certainly he can give witness to the timeline. Because, look, part of the problem with the, the memo from the Republicans is they're clearly trying to zero in on specific points rather than the whole picture, right? So we now know that on July 25th, there had already been a meeting in the White House where Sondland made it clear to the Ukrainians uh, earlier, a couple weeks earlier, that if they wanted a meeting, they needed to get out there and, you know, talk about this investigation. So talking about the 25th ignores kind of the bigger picture. That's clearly their strategy. And and, and Taylor also had a front row seat to some of the uh, things that Sondland and Volcker were trying to do in the name of the president and and, and Giuliani as well. Yeah, he he was hearing about it. So, yes, it's it's not firsthand knowledge, but he does have firsthand knowledge of what they were up to. But the other thing they're doing, if someone does have firsthand knowledge, someone like Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, they've tried to cast it as opinion. Mm -hmm. They said, oh, are you sure? Sure. Didn't you just feel this way? Go after his patriotism. So there's always an answer without addressing the root of of what is happening here. The quid pro quo. The fact that they are not going to be able to, in all likelihood, get Mulvaney Mm -hmm. or uh, Giuliani to testify uh, does set up a a real constitutional crisis here when the White House is saying executive privilege uh, and Congress is saying these are witnesses that we need. Right. But I don't think Democrats are... um, 
really betting on getting Mulvaney. I think that they're proceeding as though we have all the information that we need, and now it's uh, all about selling this. And so they are very confident about Taylor and Kent's testimony. Um, And to the point uh, about the attacks on Taylor's character, he's not an outlier. His testimony isn't Mm -hmm. some outlier. It's backed up by Vindman's. It's backed up by Kent's. It's backed up by multiple other career officials. Exactly. And over and over. Uh, The House Intelligence Committee chairman, uh, Democrat Adam Schiff, Congressman, in a memo to committee members had a warning. It sounded like a warning to Republicans specifically. He wrote, quote, the committee has a long, proud and bipartisan history of protecting whistleblowers, including from efforts to threaten, intimidate, retaliate against or undermine the confidentiality of whistleblowers. He goes on to say any member violating the Whistleblower Protection Act will be referred to the Ethics Committee. You were once the House Ethics Committee uh, chairman, uh, would that be a serious complaint? This person violated the Whistleblower Protection Act? Uh, that would be a, uh, an issue that the Ethics Committee could consider. They're supposed to investigate any violations of House rules, or in this case, uh, the breaking of a law. Uh, they can't, they can't in, uh, investigate you criminally, but, uh, but if they, I think it would rise to the level that the Ethics Committee would have to take this up seriously, and if they, if they determine there was a violation of the law, they could refer this thing to the Department of Justice. Uh, for further review or for prosecution, or they could uh, sanction a member on their own. Absolutely. This has been one of the things, though, that House Republicans have been doing behind the yes. scenes is like in, in testimony, the House Republican counsel for the, uh, for the Oversight Committee uh, has been naming the alleged whistleblower and trying to see if people met with that person. I believe it was Vindman who was asked point blank, is, or, or, or George Kent, excuse me, I've read so many transcripts this week. Um, <laughs> It was asked point blank, is this person the whistleblower? So there has been this effort to get this person's name out there, knowing that these transcripts would become public. Interesting. Everyone stick around. Uh, We have some breaking news for you on this eve of the public impeachment hearings. The New York Times just now reporting that President Trump has discussed whether or not he should fire the man who turned over the whistleblower complaint to Congress, the inspector general for the intelligence community. We're going to bring you that story next. Then, while everyone's paying attention to the impeachment inquiry, a court case is revealing that President Trump may have lied under oath. Stay with us. Breaking news just in the New York Times reporting that President Trump has discussed with aides whether he should fire the intelligence community inspector general Michael Atkinson, according to four people familiar with the discussions, because Atkinson reported the whistleblower complaint involving the Trump-Ukraine scandal to Congress. CNN's Caitlin Collins is at the White House. And Caitlin, The Times reporting that President Trump has said to aides that he believes Atkinson is disloyal. Yeah, and Jake, keep in mind, this is someone President Trump put in this job. But now that this is someone who had and read this whistleblower's complaint, deemed that it was credible, and then, of course, shared it with Congress, which has led to where we are now. The president has been venting publicly about Michael Atkinson, questioning his loyalty, even hinting at times that he believed he was working with Democrats to sabotage him. And now the New York Times is reporting that the president has been in discussions about firing the inspector general for the intelligence community. And, of course, this all comes as the the president has also been frustrated privately about those public hearings that are starting tomorrow, which, of course, this whistleblower's complaint is at the center of at. With the public impeachment hearing set to begin, there was a head spinning move by the chief of staff today. Mick Mulvaney is reversing course and now saying he'll no longer file a lawsuit, asking a court to decide who to listen to when it comes to a subpoena from House Democrats. Get over it. There's going to be political influence in foreign policy. Last night, his attorney said he would file his own lawsuit, 
after the former deputy national security advisor said he didn't want him piggybacking off of his. The move adding to the impeachment drama since it was Mulvaney who played a role in drafting a White House letter telling aides not to cooperate. It also comes amid a simmering feud between Mulvaney and the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, who Mulvaney believes is trying to take his job, though Cipollone believes Mulvaney has made impeachment matters worse. Did he also mention to me in the past the, 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 the corruption related to the DNC server? Absolutely. The White House is bracing for what they fear could be damaging public testimony. Though publicly, the president said today he wasn't worried. Outrageous hoaxes and delusional witch hunts, which are going absolutely nowhere. Don't worry about it. He complained from behind his keyboard that Democrats were relying on second and third hand witnesses. All of this, as new reporting from CNN's K-File team, shows that Trump interacted frequently with two men he claimed not to know. But again, I don't know how he knows these people. Okay, well, then they're clients. I mean, you know, he's got a lot of clients. Prosecutors allege Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, associates of Rudy Giuliani's, illegally funded Republican politicians and campaigns with money from foreign nationals in attempts to buy influence. I don't know those gentlemen. Now, it's possible I have a picture with them because I have a picture with everybody. Not only does he have one picture with them, he has several ranging from VIP campaign events, high-dollar fundraisers, and even an intimate dinner with the president. Now, Jake, the infighting between Mick Mulvaney and Pat Cipollone is more than just that, because they are two key figures is in this impeachment inquiry that is unfolding before us with these hearings getting underway. Of course, because of Mick Mulvaney's role in a lot of this, as these officials have testified. And of course, Pat Cipollone has been the one leading the impeachment defense strategy behind the scenes, along with Jared Kushner. So that is something to keep an eye on as you're watching the president's reaction to these hearings as they start tomorrow. We should note those are going to be going on as he's welcoming a foreign leader, the Turkish president, to the White House. All right, Caitlin Collins traveling with the president. Thank you so much. Uh, so let's uh, talk about this big news. The Times is reporting <laughs> that President Trump has discussed firing the inspector general for the intelligence community, uh, Michael Atkinson, for basically doing his job mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, letting the Congress know that this whistleblower complaint existed and, and, and moving on it after he found it uh, credible. It says that the aides, uh, the story says that, that one of the reasons it hasn't happened is aides think it would be a horrible idea for him and would erode uh, the Republican support for him on Capitol Hill. Yes, the inspector general uh, uh, with a part of any agency is supposed to be a check on that agency. It's supposed to be nonpartisan and not political. So for the president to retaliate against that because he fears this report says that um, that the IG is working with Democrats to sabotage his sabotage his presidency, even though there's no evidence to suggest that. Um, it's a classic Trump move, so it's not that surprising that he would be considering this, given that he has retaliated against former officials uh, for, like Sessions, for recusing himself, and then he's been fired. So what do you make of the fact that it fits in perfectly with the reporting that President Trump doesn't think that Michael Atkinson, the inspector general, is loyal to him? We've heard President Trump say similar things about Jim Comey or about Jeff Sessions. Uh, and I don't doubt it. It's, it doesn't sound like he's loyal to him. It sounds like he's loyal to what he's supposed to do for his job. Yeah, inspectors, inspectors generals guard their independence zealously and jealously, and uh, they do not take loyalty oaths to the president but to the Constitution. 
And I've dealt with these guys, and I'll tell you what, if the president thinks these guys are disloyal, an IG's nose is not a heat-seeking missile to the president's backside. He should know that, uh, because this is serious stuff. But these IG's uh, are some of the most independent people. They're thoughtful people. And I think it's, this is almost the equivalent of trying to fire Don, uh, Don McGahn, trying to, being asked to fire uh, uh, Mueller. Mueller, yeah. And it's similar to that. Again, you know, some of these, these people have backbone. But this is the way Donald Trump has operated all of his life, right? He, even in government, he does not understand it's not about loyalty to him. It is about some people actually have jobs where they're supposed to be loyal to our foreign policy of the United States of America or to what they believe is the right thing to do. I will tell you what this story does, though. This is going to be the problem for Republicans throughout this hearing. Every little, right, this is clearly not on the GOP strategy. This was not part of the memo that they just put out, right? And every single... It's almost like the president didn't read the memo. I don't think he did, actually. I don't think he even know. So, right, so the GOP on the Hill is trying to do one thing, and they're going to be sabotaged by every little in- bad instinct, I should say, that Donald Trump has. And I suspect that he will only get more whipped up the more the testimony goes on. But that, but that um, whatever you want to call it, revenge, anger, whatever is motivating President Trump to, to fire Atkinson, although he has not done so, right. that wrath is something that House Republicans and Senate Republicans are more than aware of. But it, but no less um, able to handle uh, because it changes, right? I mean, this week the president was uh, saying that Adam Schiff somehow altered the transcripts right, it's a that were being released, which it's is which is a lie. Yeah. And so they they're not, which is why they have these talking points, so they can come to come to the table with something. But it's right. always changing. That's right. And uh, it, how do you defend that? Right. How, how do you? He also defend said that he signed the Whistleblower Protection Act into law, and it's like 30 years old. <laughs> of a whistleblower it's been around a while. <laughs> but I mean, I guess here's the question, Congressman: um, Do you actually think it would erode Republican support uh, if he had fired Michael Atkinson? I have to say, I'm fairly skeptical that there's anything that the president could do that would erode Republican support in the House. At this point, you know, why would he fire him now? I mean, the act has already been done. I, you know, I think you know, because the politics of this country are so tribal. I think many Republicans, uh, you know, are, are tell me privately that they are just disgusted with the behavior of the president. But I think they're, uh, they're many of them are more worried about their elections than they are their legacies. And that's the why they do it, right? I mean, they, they would they would election. step away from the president if they could. Watch, watch, uh, the, reti- some of them. watch the retiring members because they can be more worried right. about their legacies. All right, everyone, stick around. We got more to talk about the damning information about President Trump just unveiled today at his former advisor Roger Stone's trial, which could prove President Trump lied to Special Counsel Robert Mueller. Stay with us. In our national lead now, President Donald Trump may have known much more about what was going on behind the scenes with WikiLeaks than he told special counsel Robert Mueller. At least that's according to his former deputy campaign chair, Rick Gates, who took the stand today in the prosecution of Roger Stone. Gates connected a lot of dots from Roger Stone to President Trump to that information stolen From the Clinton campaign and the DNC by the Russians that WikiLeaks ended up sharing with the world, as CNN's Sarah Murray reports. Today, for the first time, then-candidate Donald Trump linked in open court to his former confidant and advisor, Roger Stone's efforts to get intel from WikiLeaks during the 2016 campaign. Former Deputy Campaign Chair Rick Gates testified he was riding with Trump to New York's LaGuardia Airport that summer when Trump took a phone call from Stone, where the pair apparently discussed WikiLeaks' plans to release Democratic emails, which were hacked and stolen by Russians. After Mr. Trump got off the phone with Mr. Stone, what did Mr. Trump say? The prosecutor asked Gates. 
He indicated more information would be coming, Gates responded today at Stone's criminal trial. Gates testified that prior to WikiLeaks' first email dump, for months information had been talked about. After the July release, Gates said the campaign was in a state of happiness. Gates' testimony flies in the face of denials from both Stone and Trump that the two ever discussed WikiLeaks. In written responses to Robert Mueller's team, President Trump said, I do not recall any communication between Stone and WikiLeaks. The phone call and Trump's reaction puts in sharper focus how much Trump allegedly knew about how the Russian hack and release of emails could boost his campaign. This just came out. WikiLeaks! I love WikiLeaks! But that revelation was not included in Mueller's public report. It was redacted because Stone's case was ongoing. During the 2016 presidential campaign, Stone bragged about his contacts with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. I actually have uh, communicated with Assange. Uh, I believe the next tranche of his documents pertain to the Clinton Foundation, but there's no telling what the October surprise may be. He later walked those claims back and said he never communicated directly with Assange. When he testified before the House Intelligence Committee, he claimed he used intermediaries. In January, Stone was arrested in a pre-dawn raid at his Florida home. He was charged with lying to the House Intelligence Committee, obstructing those proceedings and witness tampering. He pleaded not guilty to all seven charges he faces. Now, Roger Stone will not be testifying in his own defense. Instead, his legal team played some audio today, nearly an hour of Roger Stone when he testified before the House Intelligence Committee that he's accused of lying to. In that testimony before lawmakers, he insisted he never colluded with any Russians, and this could move speedily from here. Jake, we're expecting closing arguments from both sides tomorrow. Oh, wow. That was quick. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Uh, Former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams joins me now. And, And Elliot... It does seem like the prosecution is focusing as much, if not more, on Donald Trump, President Trump's connection to WikiLeaks, as much as Roger Stone's. Right, and it's remarkable when you think about, remember the Paul Manafort trial a couple months ago, where uh, Donald Trump wasn't even a factor there. We never heard anything about Donald Trump. He was sort of the elephant in the room. Here, it's as if Donald Trump is one of the parties to this trial. And so, to some extent, the prosecutors really are um, bringing up information about Donald Trump to sort of make clear what Stone's connection to him might have been. But is that, do you think, in a way, in an effort to kind of poison the mind of a Washington, D.C. jury? The idea being they probably don't like Donald Trump, given that this is a very Democratic capital D city and... (laughs) You know, they read the papers and maybe they see this as a way to to get him. If I were one for conspiracy theories, I'd say yes, Jake. But no, I think, look, Paul Manafort's trial was about his lobbying contacts. This is much more about stemming from the 2016 campaign and what Stone's Stone's uh, relationship with WikiLeaks was there. So I would I would stick to that. And I think that's that's probably much more likely here. So Trump wrote in his written testimony to Mueller, because remember, he wouldn't sit down with Mueller. He wrote in his written testimony. He did not recall any conversations about WikiLeaks. Now, Gates testified today that he did have conversations with Trump about it. Um, I do not recall is, is, a, is a pretty big umbrella. Yeah. Look, it's at a minimum, you have a conflict in the evidence here. At a maximum, you have the president of the United States lying. Now, what's perplexing is that we know this would have been available to Robert Mueller at the time that he was preparing his report. So, number one, why didn't uh, they attempt 
tr- harder to get to secure the president's testimony, his live testimony. If you remember, there was a year of trying to negotiate over the president's testimony. Then they ended up accepting these written answers that were sort of wishy-washy and heavily lawyered up. So unfortunately, that's what we're stuck with. And um, you know what? Maybe the president's lying. And let me ask you, Stone's not testifying in his defense. Smart move. Well, here's the thing. Every time you do a criminal trial, Jake, uh, people come to you. The jurors will even come to you afterward and say, why didn't the defendant testify? If I were on trial for something, I would have testified to sort of clear my name. It's his right as a defendant to not testify, and we should support that. Now, look, he's Roger Stone. He's prone to puffery and big statements, so I don't think he would have done himself any favors if he did testify. So let's support the fact that he didn't and, and move on. A generous assessment of, Roger, <laughs> of what Roger Stone uh, it, it does uh, when he speaks publicly. Thanks so much. Coming up, no laughing matter. A top Russian official joking about his country meddling in the upcoming 2020 presidential election and laughing about a controversial Trump move. Stay with us. The world lead. Russian leaders take so seriously the conclusions of U.S. intelligence agencies that Putin ordered election interference in 2016. It's now a common Kremlin punchline. Today in Paris, a reporter asked Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov about next year's U.S. elections and, well... Take a listen. The presidential elections are coming up in 2020. So how is Russia getting ready for that? Uh, we'll resolve the problem. Don't worry. Ha 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 CNN's Fred Plaitkin is in Moscow. And Fred, this is hardly the first time a top Russian official has joked about this. Oh, you're absolutely right, uh, Jake. In fact, Vladimir Putin himself joked about this matter just a couple of weeks ago when he said uh, on a panel that, yes, of course, he would meddle once again in the 2020 election. You know, Sergei Lavrov there on that panel, he did obviously get a couple of laughs, as we heard. But of course, this is an extremely serious matter with U.S. intelligence officials and also social media companies saying that the Russians very much are at it again. That, for instance, the troll factory that was responsible for so much of the disinformation in 2016 has fired up that machine once again and indeed has started a campaign once again. One of the things, Jake, uh, that we're seeing that really seems to be emboldening the Russians is the fact uh, that President Trump has been very soft on them recently. In fact, handing the Kremlin one foreign policy victory uh, after the next, nowhere more so than in Syria. And one of the other things that the uh, foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, took a swipe at was America's policy in Syria. Have a listen to what he said to that. They uh, try to negotiate with Turkey, and then they said, OK, we cannot reach the deal, so Kurds, you're on your own. We are leaving. Then, after they, they left the Kurds and left Syria, they said, OK, we don't have any more, any more uh, obligations in front of the Kurds, but we are coming back for oil, not for the Kurds. Uh, it's, it's an interesting zigzagging, you know. So you have Sergei Lavrov clearly rejoicing uh, in some of the foreign policy confusion there on the part of the Trump administration. One of the interesting things, though, that we keep seeing here from Russia, we can't say this often enough, is that they very often criticize the U.S., in fact, rip into the U.S., very seldom criticize President Trump himself, Jake. Interesting. Fred Pleitkin, thank you so much. Appreciate it. I want to bring in Phil Mudd. He's a former CIA and FBI official. Uh, uh, Phil, first of all, your reaction to Sergei Lavrov kind of laughing at the idea of Russian election interference and uh, mocking uh, Trump's foreign policy in northern Syria. 
Boy, I would laugh at I, if I were him. Look, he's almost 70 years old, Lavrov, one of the best diplomats around the planet. He saw the decline of the Soviet Union decades ago. He was humiliated as the Russian U.N. rep when we said, forget about Russia in the invasion to Iraq. We're going in anyway. And now Russian foreign policy once smelled like dog manure. It smells like roses now. Syria, they look good. Crimea, fine. Ukraine, fine. Russian interference in the American election. The president says, I don't care. NATO, which is the bulwark, the Western bulwark after World War II against Russia. The president says, not interested. So if I were Sergey Lavrov, nearly 70, I'd say things are smelling like roses for me. I want to ask you, because testimony from the impeachment inquiry came out this week showing that President Trump apparently saw a report on CNN about the U.S. Navy taking on aggression from Russia. Here's a bit of CNN's reporting from that time. And another American Navy ship is about to steam into the Black Sea off Ukraine. The U.S. is sailing in the Black Sea to demonstrate that this is not Putin's lake, that he does not own the waters of the Black Sea. So Trump administration official Christopher Anderson testified that he had heard from the National Security Advisor John Bolton that President Trump was upset that the U.S. Navy operation was pushing back on Russia. So upset he called National Security Advisor John Bolton at home. Anderson said, quote, there was a news report on CNN and then the White House asked the Navy to cancel that. What's your reaction? But I can't figure this one out. I mean, this is transitioned from a little bit unusual to really odd. This is like writing a $20 check. It's not a big deal. The U.S. forever, and look at what the U.S. has done recently against the Chinese in the South China Sea. The U.S. forever has ensured freedom of navigation. That is, in various parts of the world, like parts of the ocean that the Russians operate in, parts that the Chinese operate in, the U.S. Navy says, we're going to make sure that we can keep operating. The president, I think, in most cases, would simply say either, big deal, go ahead and do it, $20 check, or doesn't even know about it and sees it about it, sees it on CNN. So the point is, why the heck does he cancel a $20 check? I, I don't really understand. This is not a big deal for the U.S. to do this. There was another example that came out. Another witness testified that the acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, put a hold on those Javelin missiles headed from the U.S. to Ukraine, thinking, quote, Russia would react negatively. Uh, note the coincidence. coincidence is what's with all this trying to assuage Russia? Bob... You're going to cancel me because I have a theory on this. It's pretty straightforward. Look, I think, and, and people like the Secretary of State, the former spokesperson, Sarah Sanders, have, has said this. They've talked about almost that they, they think the president was divinely ordained to rule, that this is his moment in time. I think the president, if you look at his ego, think it thinks it's his time as well. So what's wrong with the Russians interfering and helping to ensure that the president continues in office? Why alienate them when they help you at the polls? I think it's as simple as that. They play to the president's ego and he says, thanks. I'm not going to interfere in your turf. All right, Phil Mudd, thank you. So, I'm not going to cancel you. Phil Mudd, thank you <laughs> thank so much. You. Appreciate it. Coming up, the new numbers out of Iowa that are a surprise both for Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Senator Bernie Sanders. Stay with us. And we're back with our 2020 lead. And the youngest candidate in the presidential race is surely smiling today as he reads a brand new poll from the crucial early state of Iowa. Mayor Pete Buttigieg is at 22%. Former Vice President Joe Biden at 19 percent, followed by Senator Elizabeth Warren at 18 percent, all of them within the margin of error for the top spot. Senators Bernie Sanders at 13 percent, Amy Klobuchar at 5 percent, the only other candidates polling at or above 5 percent. And as Biden loses his one solid frontrunner status, he is sharpening his attacks against Elizabeth Warren, saying this during a CNN town hall. What specifically is elitist about how she's pursuing Medicare for all? Oh. The attitude that we know better than ordinary people what's in their interest. 
I know more than you. Let me tell you what to do. I'm with, and it wasn't she's elitist. The attitude is elitist. Let's uh, chew over all this. You're the Democrat at the table. Let me ask you, what do you make of Joe Biden attacking Elizabeth Warren's attitude, not her, as elitist? Uh, It's a little thin at times, but the point that he was making, I thought he did a better job last night in our town hall than he has previously. That is how a lot of people feel about health care. That is what they're very afraid of, is the idea of you're going to tell me what my health care is going to be like and I'm not going to have any choice. And you're going to take away what I have now. Even if I don't love it, it was my choice. So he's not completely wrong in what he's saying. It just hasn't always come out. We've said this before. It just hasn't always come out as eloquently as perhaps it should in terms of landing the, the hit. But it's an attack that hasn't worked on Elizabeth Warren in the past. It's one that Scott Brown made. Actually, Biden was using similar words to what Scott, Scott Brown said in the Senate race against Elizabeth Warren. And it failed um, throughout her political career. This has been something, been a knock on her, whether it appeals to a broader electorate. Mm-hmm. That is something we haven't seen yet. But but it, it, it this has been tried and it's failed. In the it's past. also an attack that was used against Obama, not just in right. 08, yeah. but also in 2012. Yeah, right. sure. Clinton used it against Obama repeatedly, you know, playing up the universities that he went to. So I just find it interesting that that Biden has decided to latch on to this and use it against Warren. Congressman, Dan, let me ask you, because you're from a, a swing area uh, of uh, Pennsylvania. Um, Pete Buttigieg showing a lot of strength in this new poll out of Iowa. Do you think he could play? I'm sure you think Joe Biden could play because he's from Scranton and he was like basically yeah. the third senator from the state for years, do you, from the Commonwealth rather. Do you think that Pete Buttigieg could play in Pennsylvania? I do. His tone and his temperament, he's trying to take that center left lane. So I think there's a, a lot there. Uh, and I, I think that what's happening, I think, in this whole Democratic primary is that you know, Bloomberg and uh, and uh, Patrick see Biden. Patrick, yeah. They see him slipping, and so and they see Buttigieg right now as a guy who's going to probably best move into that lane. And they're saying, "Hey, it should be me." And that's why I think they're jumping in because they all want to take they want to take shots at Elizabeth Warren, uh, who I think many of us would say would be a disaster for the Democrats if she were to be nominated and she could make Trump's uh, path to victory uh, but, more likely. But I was just going to say the big takeaway that I have from the Iowa poll is that three in 10 caucus goers say that they could change their mind. Exactly. And that was the yeah. that's reflective of when I went to Iowa just last month. And there was voters who were at a Bernie rally, but said she was volunteering for Warren and said she may not make up her mind until the moment she walks into the room. In so, February. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and that is actually what tends to happen. And as, as we know, in these caucus states, right, I mean, you sort of everybody goes to their corners and then you start trying to convince the people in the other corner to come to your corner. And again, with it being so fluid, this is something we've seen over and over again in these polls. I suspect it's going to stay that way. And people probably will just make up their minds at the last moment. You know, and and, it's, and they say, I want to bring you in here yeah. because it's not just about where poll numbers are. It's always about the trajectories. Where are they going? And take a look at, at how things have changed in this Iowa poll in just the last few months. Buttigieg is now up 14 points. Sanders up five. Klobuchar up two. Warren down two. Biden down seven. Senator Kamala Harris down Nine. So, I mean, moving it, to Iowa isn't what it used to be, huh? Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's not just about where the numbers are, but where they're going and, and where and how it matches up, I think, with other states as well, kind of seeing the trajectory of each of the candidates. But Laura's absolutely right. Everyone everyone's kind of trying, trying on for size. That's right. These candidates and, you know, who and seeing if they fit 
you know, their worldview and whether they can go up against President Trump. But you mentioned Deval Patrick. I mean, nothing in my experience, nothing Democrat voters love more than private equity. So, that, <laughs> yeah, that's going to be real good. Right? Let's All talk right, about Bain again. Oil. <laughs> Thanks once again. Uh, why the Supreme Court's decision to not take up one case could be extremely damaging for gun makers. Stay with us. In our national lead today, hundreds of activists and dreamers chanted, Home is here, as the Supreme Court heard arguments today. 